We're going to be looking at uh, I am the bread of life. John chapter 6 and verses 27 uh, to 40. Verse 27, do not labor uh, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, for, sorry, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to the will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and who believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I believe uh, that uh, us as Christians, we should be uh, the most humble uh, and thankful people on the side of on this planet, because God has opened us to see two things: how little we actually deserve, and how much God has done for us and become for us in in Jesus. And one of the aims, as it were, uh, of this sermon is actually to try and s- help you and me to to overflow with faith <laughs> and gratitude. Uh, in regard to to God from what we will see here. I'm speaking uh, this morning on the subject of I am the bread of life. We're just going to enter into uh, a short series, uh, under still under the title of the Magnificent Jesus. So we're going to look at the seven I am's, and then we're going to look at the seven sayings that are on the cross. So I've got the first one. We'll break uh, next week uh, for Rupert, and then we'll come back to them. So what I'd like to do is try and give you a summary and then try and see whether I can go in uh, a little bit more uh, detail. So there are two parts to the section that we we read. We read. We read. That's read. This is read, Nigel. In John 6, um, 27 to 40. And you'll find that there, there is verses 30 to 36 and 37 to 40. And they're actually divided into these uh, two parts. I'm not just saying that. Theologians believe that's true anyway. So there we go. And the best way to sum this up is it could be summed up like this. The first section could be this. God's gift of Jesus to these people is not received and is completely lost. That could be how you describe it. And it could be as well that you take the second part and say this, that God's gift to people is received and is kept forever. Or we can do it another way, just in case you've just fallen asleep. Another way would be that the first section describes an apparent failure of God sending his son to bring eternal life. 
Or if you want to, you could describe the second section of actually uh, incredible success in God bringing eternal life. They seem to contradict each other. Perhaps you didn't read that, but that's exactly uh, what they do. So what is God doing? He's try- and Jesus doing through the word of God. He's trying us to get to see the, the world through two perspectives. You live in a world of two perspectives. I'll show you how this works out in the Simpkins household. There's Maureen's perspective and there's David's perspective. And generally, David does what Maureen says anyway. So there's only one perspective. So there you go. But there are in our world two perspectives. And another way to describe these verses would be like this. To describe the section one from the side of man and his responsibility to receive what God offers And the other side of it would be uh, from God and his sovereignty in accomplishing what he wants to do. And we are looking at this passage from those two sides. We're looking at things from man's responsibility at the first point and then God's uh, sovereignty. Why is he doing that? Why is the writer trying to get us to do that? Well, in the end, what he's trying to get us to see is that even though it apparently seems that man is going to muck it up, that God is not going to muck it up and that he will triumph and he will succeed and there will be people that will come into the kingdom of God despite what you see. And that's the issue, because often we evaluate the kingdom of God by what we see and not by what God says. And that's the issue. And often some people can go, ah, oh, we went out in the town and nobody received, a le- you know, it was a bit tough and, you know, somebody swore at me. That's not God's perspective at all. God's saying the kingdom is advancing and it's advancing forcibly. So what, what's happening is, is that they're trying to get us to see the, the crisis, but actually the bigger picture of the sovereignty of God. So let's look at the story. Yet again, stomachs are empty. Jesus is uh, talking to the crowd that had followed him from the lake because he had filled their stomachs with food. And he tries to... Uh, direct their attention away from thinking about food, which I know is very difficult to do. So what he does is he he tries to bring in one of those moments to help you. And he, he tries to explain about the food that endures to eternal life. That's verse 27. And then in verse 29, he said that the way to work for this eternal food is to believe in the one that God had sent, Jesus the Messiah. So the crowd says to him, in response to being hungry and probably a little bit miserable and have forgotten the blessing of the previous day, they sort of say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see? And believe in you. It's a bit strange because I'd seen one the day before. What sign do you do then? What sort of work stuff do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. So what is happening here? This is my sense of this. Even though they'd seen him feed 5,000, this was another day. They were happy to be fed the previous day, but now... Their stomachs were not full anymore. Their stomachs were grumbling. And uh, they remembered that, that Moses had given God, uh, given manna every day. And that actually what they had done is just had a little bit on one day. They didn't have the miracle of the, of the bread every day. They had the miracle of the bread one day. So what they were saying is this. If you want us to believe you then keep on doing the stuff and we will believe you. Basically, what they're saying is that we want another feeding of the 5,000 today, thank you. And if you do that, we will believe you. I think that's cheeky. Don't you? But having said that, what would I have done in the feeding of the 5,000? That's what they were sort of saying. Cheeky, cheeky stuff. But there you go. You wonder at that point whether all heaven's going to open, but it doesn't. 
And from Jesus, you get uh, a double denial and an amazing offer. He says in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. And the first denial is that Moses is not the key player in manna. Let me just remind you that for all those people that are quite impressed with the prophet and the miracle worker. It's not Moses. Do not elevate Moses. In fact, I don't think Moses would want to be elevated. So that's the first denial. Moses was not the key player in giving manna. God was. Jesus' father was. He says in those scriptures, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father. The second denial is in 32, that the bread that God gave through Moses was not the main point of the miracle. It pointed to something bigger. It wasn't just about some stuff. It wasn't about a Mars bar in the wilderness. It was about something one day will come and be bread. It was about that. So they'd actually missed the point. It was about the point that one day true bread will come from heaven. You are experiencing this in the wilderness, but one day you will experience true bread. And as usual, you know, because they'd had their Mars bar, they could only think about the Mars bar. That's how it was. So they'd they'd missed the point on two things. First point, Moses, it was just a bloke really. It was God that was doing miracles. Second point, true bread. And the amazing offer is also found in, in the last part of this verse where it says, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, please don't miss this, Rupert Leslie. This will encourage you. It won't encourage them, just you. Okay? Because this is, the, this is what, what, what I want you to get, get, Rupert. This is just for you. This is what I mean when, when I say that we are looking at this scripture from two parts. A human responsibility and God's sovereignty. So, Rupert, don't miss the word you. My Father gives you bread from heaven. My Father gives you, Rupert Leslie, bread from heaven. Now, some people are not going to receive it, but you have it. My Father has given you bread uh, from heaven. And this is the way that we go into the world. We go into the world with a confidence that we have bread from heaven. This is the way that we do it. God has given us everything that the person out there needs to believe and become a Christian. I have given you bread from heaven. You. You have it. And that's it. He offers it to you. And we go and we say, look, we have this bread from heaven. It's free. Take and eat it. That's it. It's quite simple, really, isn't it? That's all we've got to do. God has given it to us. We give it to them. Some will eat it. But it does mean that responsibility rises, or there is responsibility rising. Because in the next verse, Jesus reinforced the nature of true bread and the scope of the offer. Because he says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world magnificent this is not Rupert that we've just given you a bit of loaf here we've given you something that will bring life to the whole world that's something to have in your pocket isn't it yeah but I just think that I've got a tract here no not ever have you got a tract in your pocket Not ever, not ever have you got a testimony. Not ever have you got four things that God wants you to know. Not ever, no. You have got bread of life, the bread of heaven that brings life to the whole world. That's the power of the stuff in your back pocket. That is extraordinary. Does that make you want to, come on. It just does, doesn't it? There's power in the gospel. It is the bread of God and it's offered. Now, okay, some people will reject it. But it comes down from heaven 
It is given to you and brings life to the world. I feel pretty fired up about that. Look, there you go. Because here we have the global effect of the gospel, but the responsibility of man rises higher because the responsibility is on two things. God gives you the bread, so you've got to go and do something with it. And then there is the other side of it, is that there's a responsibility from the people to receive it and to believe. So responsibility is up. So here's the first one, church. What are you going to do with the bread of life? Mm. Okay? Then there's the people out there who have the responsibility to receive the bread of life. Now, we can't actually do anything about them, but we can challenge ourselves on what we are going to do with what God has given us. Okay? I'll just move off that because it all went quiet. No, I'll go back. Let me just go back. So I want to just show you one thing. Because the response to this was... The same as the woman at the well. Do you remember the woman at the well when Jesus goes and he says, do you want a bit of water? And she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again. Do you remember that? And in verse 34, they say, give us this bread always. The, the, the manna that finishes and, because, and, and still they don't get it. So when you go out there, it might still be that they don't get it. <laughs> But finally, Jesus is the one that we hunger for. Verse uh, 35, he's talking about himself. He says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I find it very hard at this point to explain to you where I've come from in regard to my thinking uh, as if it like were a, a good strict Baptist person to sort of bit on the loopy side charismatic. What I want to say first is this. I am still as reformed in my theology as the day that I first was, and I'm not going to chuck that out. But I have to say this. I was miserable. <laughs> really grim. I had three suits with waistcoats and went to, but you know. It, uh, so when I'm now talking to you, I, I know that this is going to be tied up in scripture, but this is also tied up in, and I found these two things very, very liberating for me. So I'm going to try and do this as a personal thing, but I want to try and explain it to you from scripture. Because if I just say to you, don't wear a suit, it won't go. But I want to try and explain to you perhaps why I'm a bit loopy. Okay? Is that right? You could go and ask Callie, it would be much easier. And it's hard for me to do this because I think there have been two realities that have caught me in my life more than any one thing about Jesus. And and they're both tied up in this verse. So that's why you're going to get it. Okay? Okay? So let me try and explain to this this way first. Jesus, that's him and all that, that God is in him, is what I hunger and thirst for. I, the, the reason that I hunger and thirst for him is that what I discovered was that he has been merciful, loving and gracious to me. And that he is uh, unto you and that he has revealed himself in such a way that I possibly I will know. I can't think of anything else that can better him. Now, I suspect I want to say to you that I lived with other things that bettered Jesus. So I lived as a Christian, but other things were better. And one of the things that I have discovered is, is that he fulfills me in a way that nothing else did. Now, I'm saying to you that that's been a journey through. And this is why I'm a bit loopy, okay? A bit strange to you. Because this is the discovery that I've made. Because I read scriptures like, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Yeah? Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, let me try and explain to you how I moved on this. That doesn't mean that hunger and thirst in our souls does not rise up every day. It does. It does. And it, you know, I look at some things, you know, nothing. You know, I, 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 please, men, just, just bear with me for a moment. I, I hunger for a Nissan Qashqai. I just love that car. See, see, that means you hunger for something else, Phil Dance. But you've just, I just look at it. I would like to stroke it and touch it. And every time I go past, my little head goes up. And I don't know why, but it just creates a delight in me. So, look, I'm not saying that, 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 that I don't hunger or th- And sometimes I just, you know, here's Rupert, and I, I, I'm trying to sympathize with him in every way, because sometimes, you know, I'm sitting here with a real satisfaction thinking that my team is in the Premier League and yours is not. <laughs> and, and I think my, just for a short while, we just a little... And, and, and there's that sort of stuff. Now, and I have to admit... That, that I have also worked in, in business and career and, and, you know, and had two children and that sort of stuff where actually everything meant where I went between nine and five. That that was the, the thing that meant most to me. And when people challenged me on that, I have to say, folks, that I was angry with them. You can challenge me on anything you like, but not in regard to my attitude to things like this. Now, so what I'm saying is that that doesn't mean that hunger and thirst in our souls does not rise up. But what it does is that what I discovered was that it means that now I know what that hunger and thirst is for. Yeah? We now know where to go. I didn't know where to go. Now I know where to go. This is the one thing that the charismatic thing did for me. I, I've, I've knew where to go. I know where to drink. I know where to eat. I know that the cash guy won't do it for me. I think it will, but it won't. It just is true. I, what have I learned is that if I drink Jesus and if I swallow Jesus, there is a never-ending supply and fulfillment that comes that nothing else can touch. And that has been a personal journey for me, found, I hope, in Scripture here. So, and I found out that the pleasure and the treasure of him is greater than anything else, than anything body else. And I'm not saying that to you because it's my experience. I'm saying to you because I believe that's what Scripture offers to you. So I haven't discovered that Costa Coffee, the big one. Have you ever seen the size of those things? They just did me head in anyway. So I now go, small. I haven't, I, what I've discovered is that, that Jesus has the ability to satisfy my every longing. That's it. So that's the, the first discovery. And I think it says that in Scripture. So that's the, fir- the first thing. The other one is this. It's rather technical, but stay with me. Because what happened was when I was a strict Baptist, I responded to the gospel, but I was still grim. So I was a Christian, but I was grim. Okay, that was the way that it was. I have to say that part of my walk with God is discovering what salvation is all about. And that's why sometimes I do go a little bit loopy when we sing about the cross and all that sort of stuff. And the arms get uncoordinated and the legs go the wrong way around. And and you think, glad I'm not sitting by him. And the reason is to do with salvation and what is described in the Bible as uh, saving faith. So let me try and explain this one. This is the second part of it. I want you to notice the parallel between the coming of Jesus to be satisfied and believing on Jesus. So he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That's the first statement. I can find satisfaction in him. But then he says, we come to Jesus, we have our hunger stilled. And then you get the next statement. It says, and whoever believes in me will not thirst. Okay, this is the technical bit for the theologians. 
coming to Jesus to be satisfied in him and believing in him and so, uh, uh, so as not to thirst are actually the same. And I've always separated them. Saving faith is being satisfied with God, what God is for us in Jesus. So what happens is that people are not saved because the gospel we portray portrays it that they cannot find what they need in Jesus. So do you see what I mean with this? It's, it's, this is rather revolutionary. I might get stoned here, but I'm going to be out of here quite quick. It's all right. I can run. People are not saved because they feel they cannot find satisfaction in Jesus and go elsewhere. So what happens is that we portray a saving faith that sort of just is about you getting into the, rather than what is on offer afterwards. Do you see what I mean? So saving faith, sort of, I get into the kingdom. Steve, you're thrown in. I'll try and explain this a little bit more. We've got all week to do this. We get into the kingdom by our skin of our teeth. Yeah? That's saving faith. And, if, and then we grind our way through this life here. And eventually, it's heaven. Oh, we've made it. And that sort of stuff. And that is the way that the gospel generally is preached. The gospel is the the hunger and the satisfaction that Jesus can bring you into salvation is worthy of joy because it can better what nobody else can offer. That's the gospel. The gospel is only part if we just say, hey, come to Jesus, but it will be grim. No, come to Jesus. It will be the best thing that you've ever had in your life. And that gospel was not preached to me. What was preached to me was, come to Jesus and you might just manage to get to heaven one day. That's what I mean. Let me, so I want to suggest that we need to, as, as Timothy calls it, fight the fight of faith, which is the fight of joy. Because I found this was a huge discovery for me. Once I found out that, uh, that this, this gospel was something that could be enjoyed and salvation could be enjoyed, I sort of went on a different track here. I began to live. Because when you, and because the, when you make it, you, you find out that what we do is that we pump up Jesus a bit more. We're not embarrassed about it. We pump him up. You know, he's great. Whoa! You know, we sort of, we do that. You know, we sort of, what do you want to do? I want to pump up Jesus. You see, and you never read the Bible again, do you? You look at the genius and you think, God, oh, this is for me. Do you ever read that? Oh, it's just for you. Ray you sort of threading words through your eyes. Now you read the Bible and you think, whoa, it's coming my way. It's that sort of stuff, you know. So you look at it completely different. And you can see that because Paul is talking to Timothy and saying, come on, Timothy, you need to fight the good fight of faith. And, because, and he sort of explained to them, you need to fight for joy. That's what you need to fight for because what happens is that you get Christians and there's no joy. They, you just think, I want you to be a Christian, but look at me, I'm miserable. And they go, bog off. And it's just what happens. And he said, no, none of that. And it's too, here, have a tract. You look drab, you look a mess, and all that sort of stuff. And Timothy, Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you need to fight for joy, man, because it's supposed to be great. And it's part of salvation. So this is the second thing that I've discovered in re- regard to salvation, that we can enjoy, Chris, we can enjoy Jesus. That's the fun. It can, you can put fun and Christian together. Why do we put boring and Christian together? What is that? We should be the most stupid people on the faith of this earth. People ought to say, why are they having so much fun? But when we go out there, we just don't look the part. What is that? It is to do with the bread of life. It is to do with it. Because actually, as Christians, we find our satisfaction if we're honest with ourselves in other things. In other things. And are you any different to Jesus' listeners? No. Because even though that I'm explaining this to you, they were seeing and they didn't see. 
Verse 36, Jesus says this, You've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Okay? Seeing, and they didn't see. They didn't believe. They didn't come and eat. They didn't find satisfaction. So the text seems to end. The passage seems to end with the gift of God rejected. God offers his bread, his son, to his own people. And his own people did, what does the Bible say? Did not receive him. (laughs) You have to receive Jesus. This is the battle. I I had to do something about me. I I needed to receive him into the, the way, just so that I could be a bit of a nutter. There you go. They didn't receive him. And this is the way that saving faith and the purposes of God looks like from the responsibility of man and God's sovereignty. God offers his son and the man is responsible to see and believe. But apparently it appears that we just don't. So here's the question. With what I've shared to you this morning, will it change you when you go home? Thank you, Steve. I was going to wait. <laughs> and the question is... <laughs> I'm glad you're there, Steve. Because the rest of them have decided no. There you go. So as the saving purposes of God failed, and if not, why not? I want to suggest no, it hasn't. And I want to suggest that Jesus can work in you too. Verse 37 and 40 make it plain. Why? Because God is sovereign over the work of a person and salvation. And he will not let his ultimate purposes fail even on you. So if you think that you're not having any of this right now, tough mate because he's coming around the corner. And I want to just show you very briefly five powerful assertions of God's sovereign work and I think it's very important that we see him because I believe they'll be uh, very precious uh, in regard to what men says. They, I believe they'll bring uh, life and hope and security. And for you, Rue, they're going to encourage you with evangelism for next week. Okay? So if they don't get it, you will and you'll be all right. Okay? Because you're preaching the gospel next week and I'm in Stafford. So here we go. One. God gives his chosen ones to Jesus. Verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Verse 39. And this will be the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. If you want to read the whole chapter in John chapter 6, it's repeated in verse 44 and again in verse 65. God does not wait for his chosen ones to come to Jesus. If they did, they would never come. He gives them to Jesus. He chooses them for his own and he gives them to his son. There is a work of the Father going on right now, right across our world, where the work of the Father is gathering a people to give them to the Son. That is wonderful. When you go out in the street... This is what you should see when you go out in the workplace, when you do the things that you do, when you're at the school gate or, or the uh, Darby and Joan meeting with David and Maureen, when, you, when they're together and all that sort of stuff, when they're doing that, and you should, what you should know is this, that the Father is gathering a people for his Son. It is a constant work of God that goes on until he returns. The Father's gathering people in. He's gathering people in today. I said they were brief, so I better move off. Secondly, because God gives them to Jesus, they come to him. This is the doctrine that I was grim about years ago. This is irresistible grace. See, that's woken Bill up. Because he remembers what that was. He's just forgotten it. But this is irresistible grace in the charismatic church. So reformed theology, here it is. Verse 37, just for you, Bill. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. It is irresistible. They can't stop it. 
Hey, they're being reeled in. Mm, it's magnificent. Do you know what's magnificent about this? It doesn't matter the size of the fish because the father's got the rod. That's the wonderful thing. Be theological, Nigel. Okay. Or, as we've seen in verse 35, they believe in Jesus. It is not the other way around. Jesus does not say that because people come to Jesus and believe in Jesus, God therefore gives them to the Son. No. Those whom the Father gives to the Son come to the Son. He secures their coming. He works in regard to their coming. He guarantees their coming. When you came to Christ, God bought you. He reeled you in, Steve. You didn't realize that, but actually you were hooked. Absolutely hooked. The hook went in under your shirt and it was irresistible. And when Jesus became uh, understandable to you, it wasn't because you suddenly understood it. It was because God was doing that in your life. You didn't make Jesus, uh, you didn't invite Jesus into your heart. No, God opened your heart and you welcomed it in. And when you did, you came freely without resistance. Why? Because it was an incredible work of God. God gives them to Jesus. We can go out there with huge confidence that God is at work and he will reel them in one after another. We can see these, these, we can fill these blank chairs. Easy. Why? Because God reels them in, not me. I don't have to be the great evangelist to do this. We don't have to change our systems. Oh my goodness, we are so bad at doing church these days. We all need to wear pink. Pink will do it. You see that with churches are gathering together. They think, oh my goodness, what we must do is we must change things. Redress Nigel. Get him to dye his hair. Maybe he should stop, change his accents. Send him for elocution lessons. Stop him doing all that sort of stuff. Get somebody else in. Change the way that we do it. I know, let's all drink coffee and have big donuts. That might do it. No, it won't. God's at work, folks. What's the secure thing here? We can bomb it up and God will work. That's the thing. You can. Because you listen to How many times have you said something like this? You know, somebody said to me, tell me about Jesus, and it begins like this. Uh, uh, He's good. (laughs) And the person comes back to you and said, and when you said that to me, that was wonderful. And you go, no, why? Because it's irresistible grace. We don't have to change the great truths of God to make it look fanciful to a world. Why? Because God works. That's the best bit. He can work anywhere. Yeah, smart and you act up church. No, believe in God. Believe in God. That's what we need to do. Come on, Nigel, give me a quick. Okay. The the problem is with this, I found that when I was working this, my my titles got bigger. Wait till you see the fifth one. Thirdly, those who are given to Jesus and come to Jesus are omnipotently, this is for Bill again, and eternally kept by Jesus. None are lost. Verse 37, look at it. All the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never, what, cast out. The giving and the coming are the Father's sovereign work. And the keeping is the Son's sovereign work. What you're saying is, well, Jesus, you are not doing your work. No, he said, it is finished. Which means that he will not lose what he has been given. As the Father says, here, hold these, they're a bit slippery. Oh no, of course he doesn't. He said, hold these, you can hold them. Look, verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. Now I want you to be encouraged with this, because some of you have known Christians that have backslid. This is what you pray. This is what you pray. You pray in line, have you heard that said? Pray in line with scripture. You go back to God and you say, Lord, this is your will that you lose nothing that you have given me. If the Father gives it, that 
to the Son. The Son will never lose it or reject it. So come on, Lord. That in there. I want to quote you a great theological explanation in regard to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that who shall ever believe in him shall have for God so loved the world, whoever believes in him shall have temporary life. Nah. It's the gift of eternal life. It's eternal. Not temporary. It can't be lost. We are secure. This is how we pray. One short one and a massive long title. Jesus will raise us up from the dead on the last day. Verse 39, and this will be the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise, what does it say, it up on the last day. Oh no, he's calling me it. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now Jesus knows that death looks to everyone defeat it looks a loss when we're preaching the gospel it looks a loss it looks as if our bodies are lost too yeah aging looks a loss yeah you some of you younger ones won't do this but some of the older ones uh, you look there and you think who is that? You just do that, do you? you? You look there and you go to shave and you think, what is that? I, and I, the trouble is, that I seem to do it a bit more often, which means I must be, I just think, that's not what you, what we, you know, I seem to sound the same. And my, accent, my accent was actually stronger, but you know, but you know, who is that? You look at illness, don't you? And it just it seems to, it just looks a loss, illness, doesn't it? It just looks a loss. We've got uh, Callie's grandfather uh, in a pilgrim home. It's a Christian home for aged pil- pilgrims. And Callie's grandfather should be 100 in January. He's 99. And, and when he went into the home, he was one of those people that we put him into the home, mainly as a family, because, not because of his physical ability, but because his mind had gone. He just ended up in strange places at strange times and was unsafe. But physically he was fine. And actually, in the, in the, 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 the world that he was in, he was happy. He just didn't know where, why he was happy and where he was, but he was happy. And all that sort of stuff. In the last two weeks, it has been described as this. How many times do you hear this? He's just gone downhill. And you, you see that description on people there. Suddenly they're there and they just go downhill. And we're not sure that he will now make his 100th birthday, but he's gone downhill. It looks lost. The aging process and illness. Now, I don't mean this to be gruesome, and I've got no pictures to do this, but actually when you look at accidents, they look lost, don't they? You tell me what is not loss about an accident. Kelly had the uh, interesting, well, not interesting, but incredible thing one day when she was working as a nurse in London where the, uh, she was on an overlap shift and she was working in surgery and the nurse that she was actually working with got on a bike, uh, drove in London and a lorry hit her. So uh, the next person that came in uh, was the person that Kelly had just been working with. Uh, and she sort of reeled back as she, she looked at this person. Because to all intents and purposes, accidents are loss. It looks loss. Aging, illness, looks loss. And to that, this is why the gospel is so good, folks. This is why Jesus is so magnificent. Jesus says this, I will raise it up on the last day. He says two things. I will raise him up. I will raise it up. I will raise, I will raise the aging, illness, accident-prone body. Your body will not be lost. That's the gospel. Isn't that magnificent? 
What have you got to say to somebody? Here's, here's hope. Jesus will raise it up on the last day. And this is the last thing, point. And I'm very sorry about this. I did try and shorten it, but there it is. <laughs> Finally, the unshakable foundation of all this sovereign work. He's giving, he's coming, he's keeping, he's raising the unshakable foundation, which I'll mention three times, just in case we miss this, is the will of God. God will raise it up. Nothing is more sure in this world than the sovereign will of God. Verse 38 gives us the ground why Jesus will not cast out uh, any of whom the Father gives to him. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. It's God's sovereign will that none be lost. Verse 39. And it is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus will not fail to keep us, will not fail to raise us, because it is the sovereign will of God. He wants it to happen to us. He says to the Son, Son, this must happen. Verse 40 says it again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is the sovereign will of those whom he gives to Jesus, those that come to Jesus, those (laughs) do not have a temporary blessing but have eternal life. They rise from the dead. The bodies are not the lost. This is the sovereign will of God. God. Never does let me let one go. Because it's to do with God's will. What you're saying is God has to change his will. He's not going to change his Never, never, never. He's not going to do that. He says to us, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What's that a pattern of? His will. So now we've got both sections, verse 30 and verse 36, from the side of man's responsibility. And how the bread of heaven apparently is rejected. And verse 37 to 40, from the side of God and his sovereignty, how God gives his chosen one when they come how he keeps them, raises them from the dead according to his sovereign will. And on the basis of that, we know that his sovereign will never fails. It never fails. Let me just read to you something from Isaiah to bring to you strength in preaching the gospel. I am God. There is no other. I am God There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So whether you find yourself in Isaiah, or whether you find yourself in John, I feel it really humbled that everything that we've just read applies to me. I find that really humbling. I do not deserve this, but it is given to me. I find that it wants to spur me to worship for what has been given to me. I feel that it has given me an incredible security for tomorrow and beyond. But beyond that... It's made me dead happy. I'm happy. I'm happy to be a Christian. I'm so, you know, he has made me glad. I just think, you know, we won't do it. You're all right. You, just, you panicked then, didn't you? No, he's not, is he? Yeah, I know. But it just is. You know, I just think this actually is just extraordinarily fun. It just really is great stuff. And so I think... If I've been given to this, this is my point, and then we'll just finally, finally, finally. I just think, why should I not enjoy it? 
let's do enjoy it. Because one of the, the overriding things is that I think if we enjoy what we are given, we will probably see more of God work. I think it's as simple as that. I, I was brought up to be—I've been brought up to be a miserable sinner. I, I am now a happy Christian because, according to the Bible, I am no longer a sinner. I am righteous. That's what it says. So I'm going to have fun, folks. So I want to just finish because I don't know where everybody is, and we'll make a short one. We'd said that the chosen come to Jesus. And if you ask, how can I know that I'm amongst the chosen ones? How can I know that I have been given to Jesus and that he will keep me and he will raise me? The answer is very simple. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Are we going to do a song at the end of this? Okay. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not thunder. Whoever Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall not thirst. If you come to him like this, this is how you come. You come to him and you say, (laughs) that. And if you come to him like that, and if you've been given by the Father to the Son, you will be kept. And if you're kept, you will be raised. So my suggestion is this. It isn't just that we come to Jesus for our salvation, for our for, to be satisfied in that way, and our thirst quenched and our hunger unfilled, but actually that we are a coming people. I think that's the, the, the doctrine of the incarnation and the second coming, that they're not two events. We sang, come Lord Jesus, Because what happens is that Jesus came in incarnation. He comes in the end time. And between that, he keeps coming. So we can come to him and we can come to him and he will come to us and he will satisfy us. So my suggestion is this. Just keep coming to Jesus every hour of the day and hunger and thirst and allow him to be your satisfaction.